When I was in high school, I was known for a couple things. I'm only going to tell you about one of them. And that was that I had a whole lot of Christian t-shirts, cheesy Christian t-shirts. I once heard a kid use that as a reference point. He said, I, if I had a Christian t-shirt for every time Miss Pat made that face, I'd be Zach Bartles. That's what he said. Now, the problem was I was a bit of a jerk as well, so the Christian t-shirts kind of probably were, were not so much a witnessing tool as sort of a self-righteous thing, but I had a lot of them that were really, really clever, too clever by half maybe. I'm not talking Lord's Gym where Jesus is doing a push-up with the cross on his back. I'm, I'm talking about some very clever ones, including my favorite one, which came from an American Baptist youth group retreat it had a bunch of fish swimming one direction, tons and tons of fish, big ones, little ones, all creating one big current moving this way. And then it had a, a Jesus fish, an ichthus, going the other direction. And it said, go against the flow. It was the theme of whatever junior or senior high event I had gotten the this, this shirt at. And I always thought about that when I felt the pull to go with the group, to go with the culture, to go against God's word, that we're called to go against the flow as Christians, to follow Jesus in a way that is counter-cultural. And we see that very much in this passage here. It's a long passage. We're going to just burn right through it because we're following Paul and Barnabas through the last leg of this first missionary journey. And we're starting to see a repeat of some patterns, but here we also see some new things that are happening. And I think as we go through this, we see a little bit about how we as Christians, whose goal in life ought to be to glorify God and to fulfill that great commission and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, we see how we, in doing that, can go against the flow and find help from God Almighty. So Paul and Barnabas, as they finish this trip, if you've got the maps in the back, I should have put a map in the bulletin this week, I apologize, you'll see that this first missionary journey is actually quite a bit smaller compared to some that will come afterward, but still, they get out there a ways. They're going deep into Asia Minor this week, and as they go in, they're, they're traveling in places where there's a lot of danger, there's a lot of uh, different challenges, and yet there's also a lot of fertile ground for the gospel. And at every place they stop, and this will be the case throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see that they receive both positive and negative response. That there are those who hear the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on a cross for their sins, and they receive, and they believe, and they're born again. And then there are those who hear it and scoff, and they're indifferent. And then there are those who hear it and are enraged. And they begin to work against the apostles, spreading lies and deceit or even trying to kill them. And we've seen this before in the book of Acts, but it's worth repeating that having a faithful witness does not guarantee that you will make a disciple. That means that if you have tried to proclaim the gospel to someone, you've shared your faith with someone, and at the end of the day, they say, no, I, just, I, I don't care about that. I'm not interested in that. Or that's good for you, but it's not for me. It's, it's easy to say, what did I do wrong? How did I drop the ball? Jesus told us there will be different kinds of soil. And if you spread the news, you sow the seed of the gospel, sometimes it will spring up quickly and die. Sometimes it will spring up and bear fruit. And sometimes it won't spring up at all. The devil will snatch it away before it even has a chance. Remember that in your life as someone like Paul trying to carry out the Great Commission. 
Just as we saw on Easter morning, when the light shines, some scatter for the darkness, like when you pick up a rock in your garden. When the light shines, others will rage against it, curse the light, and try and snuff it out, but still others, as the seed is planted in good soil and is watered, and the light shines down, will begin to grow, and that's why we do what we do. And we see both of these responses, or rather all three of these responses, here in this last leg of the missionary journey. So stop one, Iconium. Anyone here ever been to Iconium? Me neither. But I'll tell you what, they went to the synagogue there right away. That was Paul's thing. He would go first to the synagogue. He was very well trained at reasoning with the Jews because he was trained as a rabbi. And he could get into the gospels, uh, get into the, the scriptures with them and bring the gospel through the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, even some of the other teachings of the rabbis. And he could tie it all together nicely. And he had success right off the bat. We find that he has great success. And then, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Ever had this where you have success at first? And then suddenly, out of nowhere, you go, what happened? It's the enemy at work. It means that you were on a good track. It means that you ought to double down. In fact, that's what we find here. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly. Not even but. Not people stirred up trouble and poisoned their minds and started lying, but they stayed for a long time. No, so they stayed. Paul and Barnabas knew we start feeling this kind of resistance, we're doing God's work. And we need to dig in. And we need to continue to double down on the message of grace or the word of grace, as we read here, because it will overcome. And God puts his stamp of approval on what they're teaching and doing by allowing them to do miracles that confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then things get worse. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with these Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. Notice something, though, here. They change location, but not vocation. When things get so bad, they say, we can't stay anymore. We need to live to preach another day. We need to go. Often Paul will do that and lower me out of the city in a basket or I'm going to kind of sneak off and I'm going to live to preach another day. It doesn't mean they become discouraged and say, ah, there's nothing to this. I'm not gifted at this. I can't, I can't pull this off. It's so easy for that to happen with us. You try and share the gospel with somebody that rebuff you, somebody else, and someone starts spreading rumors about you. Here, Zach is such a weirdo. How many Christian t-shirts can you have? It's easy to say, oh, never mind. This, I, guess, I guess I'm just not gifted in this way. Remember, there will be resistance. There will be tribulation. That's a theme of this chapter. And verse 7 here is key. They went to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 7, and there they continued to preach the gospel. That'd be a good one to commit to memory. Things were tough. Things were bad. They even had to get out of there. It was too hot in the kitchen. But where they went, they continued to preach the gospel. And again, notice that the miracles, including this big one that happens here in Lystra, 
are to confirm what they are preaching. They're not the main point. This man who's healed in, in the city of Lystra, it says in verse 9, he heard them preaching. He heard Paul proclaiming the gospel, and he began to respond with faith. And when Paul saw that, he came and he healed him. This should remind you a bit of a healing that Peter did earlier in the book of Acts at the temple gate called Beautiful. There was a man begging who had, who had uh, been crippled for life, and, and he, he, they said, Silver and gold have we none, but what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand and walk. And the man stood and walked, and he was saved. In both cases here, Peter and Paul were told specifically, look intently at people that otherwise would have been just forgotten. Right? Walk right by, maybe throw them a coin or two to assuage your conscience, but people aren't looking at interacting with these beggars. Peter and Paul, they see them. They see the, the precious soul there, a person in need. Not only a person in need of help, money, food, but a person, a soul in need of salvation. And so they come and bring the gospel to bear and then bring the power of God to bear and a miracle. And don't miss the fact that they say stand up to a man who has literally never once stood up. And the man tries it. He reacts in faith. Faith, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. Faith is the instrumental means by which God brings us back from the dead, brings us back from being blind to seeing, brings us back from the edge of disaster and hell back into his fold. When they had healed this man, everyone in the surrounding area were impressed with the miracle, and they began excitedly talking to each other, and it seems they were talking in a tribal language that Paul and Barnabas didn't quite understand. And they're all blah, 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 talking, and Paul and Barnabas are going, well, I know a lot of languages, but not this one. I wonder what they're saying. Have you ever been in like an elevator, and people are talking in a language that you don't understand, and then they laugh, and you're like, I know they're laughing at me. And you wish that you had like, Google Translate out or something so you could find out exactly what they were saying. Odds are they weren't saying that you were literally a Greek god, right? Spoiler alert, they were talking about you, but that's not what they were saying. But that is what's going on here. And if somehow I were to find out, oh, they're saying that they think I might be a god, I guess I'd be flattered, but not Paul. No, and the way that Paul and Barnabas found out uh, what they were saying in this other language is that there came a procession from the city led by a priest where the bull would have had jewels and laurel wreaths and things that kind of decorate it, snazz it up, and they were going to sacrifice this bull to Paul and Barnabas, whom they believed to be the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. This has never happened to me. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but I have to imagine it's one of the more awkward situations that Paul finds himself in. What's going on here is I think we're seeing Paul start to learn a little bit about how to minister to Gentiles. He's been called to be the great apostle to the Gentiles, and he's been told he will also preach to the Jews and bring many of them to faith. He's been very successful with the Jews, and here we see him learning. We see him watch syncretism happen. Syncretism is, is when someone hears a, a gospel message and they sort of twist it and force it into their existing worldview and values and understanding of things. And it, it can be very dangerous. When, when the gospel was brought to some areas of South America, 
People said, oh, well, we've already got, you know, this, this uh, big female goddess deity. We've got several other deities. And they sort of said, all right, well, uh, this one will just call her Mary. And then they, you know, these are the saints. And they, they sort of spun them together and turned them into something else besides the gospel. And that was starting to happen right away. But there's also a little background here. We don't know whether or not Paul knew this. It doesn't seem that he did. But about 40 years before they arrived in Lystra, Ovid had written about a local legend in that area, that Zeus and Hermes had taken on human form and had gone door to door through the valley, knocking on doors, saying, will you take us in? Everybody slammed the door in their face until they got to the very last house, which was this this junky little cottage that these poor older people lived in, this elderly couple. And they said, come on in and fed them and let them sleep there. And in the morning, they took them up, up out of the valley and said, we're going to reward you by turning your ramshackle old shack into a golden temple, and we're going to punish everyone else by flooding the valley and killing them. And so they know this story, and then here come these two guys. One of them is the messenger, like the messenger god Hermes. The other one says nothing. They assume he's the, the head honcho god, Zeus. And they say, okay, this time we're ready for you. I'm not going to get killed in a flood. I'm getting a gold temple myself. And so they take what they knew, or they thought they knew, and they take the new information and kind of push them together. And Paul realizes he's got to back up and start earlier in the process. He's got to find something they have in common. He's got to, he's got to go back to the very beginning. He's honing his approach to evangelizing Gentiles. Usually he goes first to the synagogue. In Lystra, there's no synagogue. There's not enough Jewish males to support a synagogue. And so he has no choice but to go right to the Gentiles. And, and, you know, he recognizes immediately that he needs to start where they are. Just like when Gideon went, he had to knock down the altar to Baal before he could build one to Yahweh. There are some things that had to be addressed in how they viewed the world before the gospel would even make sense to them. This becomes Paul's standard practice. He reads the people to see where to start with the gospel message. If it's in the synagogue, if it's with the Jews, he knows they'll know the scriptures, and I can just take the scriptures, tie them together in a bow with Christ at the center, and say, you see, it was about him all along. But here, they don't know anything about the one true God. They only know about a whole pantheon of phony gods. So, this is how he approaches things. First, he rejects their worship as vehemently as possible which is the right thing to do, again, if anyone ever tries to sacrifice a bull to you. But it is saying something that he rejects it. Both Paul and Barnabas tear their garments. Now, you would do that if you were in the presence of blasphemy to to kind of uh, represent the fact that you have been so offended that you don't want even the clothing that was in the presence and polluted by that blasphemy to exist anymore. You tear it. Remember, the high priest tore his robes and said blasphemy when Jesus says, it is you who have said that I am the Son of God. Contrast this with what we read about with Herod a few chapters ago. That he went out in his royal robes, which Josephus tells us were, were made of silver, threads of silver all throughout, so he shined like he was divine himself. He wanted people to think that. And when they said, this is the voice of a god, not a man, he just sort of smiled a little and said, oh, do go on. By contrast, Paul and Barnabas take their ordinary garments that aren't made of silver, and they tear them. The very suggestion that they might be gods is an affront to them. 
And this might seem completely foreign to our lives today, unless you're a rock star or a star athlete or for some reason Paris Hilton, probably no one's going to intimate that you might be an actual deity. And yet, what was Herod's sin there? Taking glory that belonged to God. That we do. It's a temptation even for ministers, maybe even especially for ministers. As if things don't go well, well, the culture's changing, and oh, trends, and oh, this happened. But when things go well, there's the temptation to say, yeah, I was very smart about that. Yes, I, I, I have a very good approach. I'd like to tell you about it sometime, and, and kind of take a bit of God's glory for ourselves. Herod thinks he's the king, right? He's a great king, and, and well, God has the glory. I can tax it and take some for myself. Well, as Christians, we exist for what reason? What is the chief end of man? Yes, we exist to glorify him, not ourselves. And so Paul gets that out of the way right off the bat. No, no, no. Then he connects with them where they are. In the last chapter, we saw Paul in, in Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch. He's at a high level. He's, he's getting all these scriptures together and actually sometimes mid-sentence he'll switch from one passage to the next knowing that the crowd will follow him. But here they don't have that advantage. And so he goes back in verse 15 to something they all understand and that is creation. In verse 15 he says this, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. One thing that they could agree on is that there had been a divine hand involved in creating the world. Today, you might not even have that common ground when you try and share the gospel with someone. Romans 1 assumes that everyone who has seen creation is without excuse because they've seen God's handiwork and they've seen his eternal power in divine nature. But today, many would even deny that, meaning that on a basic cosmic level of understanding, these guys in Lystra who are about to sacrifice a bull to two randos who just wandered into town are further ahead than some of the smartest people today. But they had it in common. And you can tell if someone has that in common with you. I mean, look around you. Don't you think something greater exists that brought all this about? And if someone says, yes, there is a point to start. The true God is the creator of everything. And so he starts with that. And then in verse 17, he moves on to the idea of providence. Further proof that Paul was a Baptist. I'm kidding Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So many people, when you try and bring the gospel, they, they say, well, hold on a minute. Why, why does God, if he exists, let bad things happen to good people? Paul comes from the other angle. Say, have you ever wondered why God allows good things to happen to everyone? The rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He points to their seasonal harvest, the food they eat, the joy they experience. He says it all bears witness to God's eternal power. It all shows a God who is wise and good, and this is the God I proclaim to you. Providence means that not only do we exist to glorify God, but everything is fair game for God to use for his purposes. A great example of this is the Roman roads that are such a great blessing to bringing the gospel out to the ends of the earth. 
They're a huge blessing here to Paul and Barnabas. They're currently on the Via Sebasti, a paved road built by Caesar Augustus to connect two military provinces. He didn't have good things in mind. He didn't have the things of God in mind, but God uses them. That is providence. And so he starts where they can all start together, and then he begins to walk them through. See, Paul's approach is not that super confrontational thing, at least not here, and almost never the holding of the sign as people walk into the concert that says, turn or burn, repent. Now, he's going to call them to repent. If he doesn't, he's not bringing the gospel at all, but he does not start there. He doesn't condemn them for living in the darkness. Instead, he brings them the light. That's our role as Christians. That's our role as disciples. However, in shining that light, he does illuminate the folly and wickedness of worshiping idols instead of the one true God. He he does shine a light on that. And there's a tension here. And I, I would actually use the illustration of a doctor to kind of play this out. If, if I had a horrible uh, physical problem, maybe I, I had a cancer or, or my, my artery was 95% blocked and, and I needed something very urgently or I was going to fall over dead. And I went into the doctor's office and he knew what was going on, but he just took one look at me and began to just berate me. Like, look at you. You pathetic schlub. You need to get some exercise going. What a horrible lifestyle you have. You're too sedentary. Try breaking a sweat once in a while, Mary. And, and, and I can see your diet. What are you, Taco Bell every day? Yeah. You know what? Before he got to the bad news that would bring him to the good news that there is a cure, I would say something to that guy that I have only said once to a doctor. You're fired. And I would leave. And that wouldn't be good. But if there were a doctor who had such a gentle and kind and soothing bedside manner, but in the interest of not upsetting the patient, never got around to the difficult information. Well, that would be even a worse malpractice, wouldn't it? A great uh, missionary, Amy Carmichael, put it this way, if I am afraid to speak the truth lest I lose affection, or lest the one concerned should say, you do not understand, or because I fear to lose my reputation for kindness, if I put my own good name before the other's highest good, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Paul comes in with the the stark reality. When the light shines, he shines on something that is worthless. ESV says vain, NIV says worthless, and I think that bears the thrust of that word a little bit better. He doesn't beat around the bush. Undoubtedly, there's much in Lycaonian culture that is good and it should be celebrated and there's much to learn from them. But these specific things, worshiping false gods and offering sacrifices to them, were less than worthless. And to imply anything else would be a huge impediment to proclaiming the gospel. And so he tells them like it is. Today doing this will get you branded anything from ignorant to intolerant, but it remains true if we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him, then we must proclaim the truth that any other route, any other so-called path to God or a God is less than worthless. This is one area in which we are called to be countercultural, to swim against the stream, 
to go against the flow, like my corny t-shirt said. What a hateful act it would be to avoid an awkward conversation or to avoid looking bad by avoiding this difficult truth. But even with this, we're told they were barely able to keep these men from sacrificing to them. Weird, yeah, but at least it means they'll listen, right? I mean, you thought we were gods a minute ago. You'll listen to what we have to say. Then in verse 19, things go from bad to worse. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You've heard of trolls on the internet? People were there just to make trouble? These trolls traveled a hundred miles over, over all sorts of terrain just to come and stop the spread of the gospel. If only we had the same zeal in spreading the gospel that the world has in stopping the spread of the gospel. Would there be anywhere that hadn't heard the message of Jesus Christ at this point? Once again here, we see that groups that were otherwise at odds will come together to oppose the message of salvation. Uh, unity is not always something to be celebrated, only if it's unity around something worthwhile. This goes all the way back to when Pilate and Herod, who used to be at odds with each other, became best buds for life around the death of Jesus Christ. And once again, we see how quickly crowds of people can be blown about by every little breeze and fad and rumor. From Hosanna on Sunday morning to crucify him, crucify him on Friday afternoon. From, wow, you must be God, to a few days later, persuaded to drag these men out of the city and stone one of them, they thought, to death. This is why when I speak at a camp or at a youth retreat or, or at a revival or wherever, and someone says, how many decisions were there? I say, I don't care. These decisions that these people made would never save them. The decision that these people made to listen didn't save them. No, only being born again will save us. How many people were born again? Now you say that sounds like semantics. It is. But I think it's important semantics. Who had a change of heart? Who was raised from death to life? Well, they stone him. They take him outside the city. And his disciples, probably intending to bury him, gather around the body only to find him stand up and say, okay, let's move on. Now, the text doesn't tell us, so we don't know whether this is an example of something miraculous or whether this is just an example of how Paul was a mean, tough little hombre, probably a combination of both of them. This, this guy, I mean, he endures a lot, an awful lot. But they move on once again. This time they go off the paved road, the Roman highways. They go to Derby, And as they travel, not as the crow flies, this is the furthest point in this first missionary journey. And when they get to Derby, surprise, they preach the gospel. This is what they do. And in Derby, they make a great number of disciples. And that ends this missionary journey. Now, what would I do? They've gone in a large, almost, circle. By going to Derby, they've come all the way back around, and they're headed back where they started, which is Antioch of Syria. They could have just kept right on going by foot over land, and it wouldn't have been that difficult to get back to where they were headed. 
No one would have blamed them. It makes sense. In fact, Paul does that later in some other missionary journeys when he's going largely by ship. Even if they had originally intended to do some more stuff, everyone would understand, yeah, okay, you've, there's many reasons to believe he was very ill during part of this missionary journey. You've been literally beaten as badly as a person can be and yet survive. You've earned yourself a trip home. Add to it that there is this constant threat as groups of people hostile to the gospel are following them around trying to stop them. There is a, a current pushing them back home. And yet they go against the flow. They go against the stream. And they backtrack and begin to go to each of the cities that they had already visited and visit them again and see how things are going and try to help secure things all the more. As they travel back, they do three things. And I think these three things can teach us quite a bit about how to make disciples in a post-Christian world because it's similar to how one made disciples in this pre-Christian world. First, as they went anywhere where they hadn't had a chance to establish elders in the churches, they did. A plurality of elders is the biblical mode of governing a church. It's something that Baptist churches in the last 20 to 30 years have been rediscovering in droves and returning to, and I think with great results. And as they go and do this, it becomes clear that even in these, these infant churches, Christianity is an organized religion. I hear that so often. Oh, I love Jesus. I just don't like organized religion. Hmm. You're telling me two different things here. Because there needs to be those who will, who will administer the Lord's Supper, who will proclaim the gospel, who will, who will undertake spiritual discipline when it's necessary, who will challenge and lead. And so following the example of the synagogues, they go and they appoint elders wherever they go. Secondly, they encourage and strengthen. Perhaps this is the most important thing. And the main thing that drives them backward as they go retracing their steps, visiting town after town. I think this tells us something important for our world today. That when the world's values are hostile to the gospel, our energy is better spent encouraging one another to stay faithful rather than blasting the culture for being godless. The former will have great impact. The latter, it's like spinning into a hurricane. Thirdly, verse 22, and perhaps this is the theme of this passage. As they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we will enter. There is a cost of discipleship. Salvation is free, but there's a cost to following Jesus, which is why he said, before you come to me, count the cost. And Paul undoubtedly has counted the cost, and he recounts it actually again and again. In fact, this little trip is something he goes back to. In 2 Timothy, he's writing his last letter. And he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. That if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, there will be some tribulations that come your way, not just the ordinary stuff that comes everyone's way, but something that comes because of the name of Jesus, because you follow the Savior. 
Francis Asbury, who's known as the father of modern Methodism, wrote this. I was converted at the age of 16. At the age of 18, I began to preach. At 26, I left my native land, bid farewell to my weeping parents, and crossed a boisterous ocean to spend the rest of my days in a strange land. In 30 years, I have crossed the Allegheny Mountains 58 times. I have slept in the woods and been without food and covering. Through the southern states, I have waded swamps and led my horse for miles. As a result of these journeys, I took cold that brought on the diseases that now prey on my body and must soon end in death. But I still have the same belief that through the merits of Christ and by the grace of God, I am saved. Francis, thou almost persuadest me to be a Methodist. So what do we see here to apply ultimately to our lives and our culture today, which of course is quite different from the culture where people will come up to you with a bull and say, you're God's right. Last time we were in chapter 13, I mentioned the nuns and the duns. Remember, and I said, don't be discouraged when people you bring the gospel to know a lot about the Bible because they were raised in the church and they can anticipate what you're going to say. You can use that to your advantage. You can, you can connect with them and skip a lot of the preliminaries. And you can help bring the gospel to them yet again because the Spirit is working in the preaching of the gospel. The same thing is true of the nuns, those who know nothing of the gospel. Those who, when they get their, their census, they say, religion, nothing, none, zero. I have nothing to do with it. I never have, and I don't feel any need ever to. People today know nothing of the Scripture or the Savior. Or worse, they think they know all about Christianity based on a couple of Wikipedia articles and some ill-informed college professor. But like Paul, we have to meet people where they are. Yes, the world has lost any vocabulary of Christian faith that they once had. And so we need to be creative. And we need to seek the leading of the Spirit in finding places, points in which we can connect. Matthew 10, 22, we read these words, You will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And these Christians absolutely endured. As they come to the end of this journey, we read, From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They fulfilled this mission. They finished the job, and that will be what Paul says at the end of his life. I've run the race. I have fought the good fight. They arrive back where they started to debrief, and after all they've endured, Paul sums it up with not, that was hard, or I hated the part where I got stoned and left for dead. Rather, he says, guys, listen up. God has opened wide a door of faith to the Gentiles. Some of us are so unwilling to move past what God didn't accomplish through our efforts. I've had people come up to me again and again and say, Pastor, what am I doing wrong? I shared the gospel with somebody, and they, it was like I didn't say anything. It was like I told them about a sale at Sears or something. They just kind of turned away. Why, why is this not happening? Well, Paul had more stories like that than you, and they're more intense and some of them involve people throwing stones at him until they thought he was dead. And yet he says, I'm going to focus on what God is doing, opening wide a door of faith to the Gentiles. 
I struggle with the same thing. I, I, was, I preached at the mission again. No one came to the invitation. It was a seventh time in a row. Or not enough people came to worship or Bible study or what's going on. Rather than focusing on what God is doing and following Him closely. The very fact that they arrived home safe and alive is evidence to them that God was with them and protecting them, just as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. And by the way, that's also God's providence. At the end of the day, though, if Paul had it to do again, do we suppose that he would go just directly to Derby and skip the whole mess where the people tried to stone him, then followed him to another town, where there he was actually stoned to death, and it doesn't seem like he had a chance even to finish proclaiming the gospel, at least not well. He certainly didn't have a chance to follow up. He had to get out of there. Was it a waste of time in Lystra? It was a bit of a fiasco, but let me explain something that the text doesn't tell us right here. If he hadn't stopped there, it's a pretty decent chance he wouldn't have been stoned to death. There's a pretty decent chance there wouldn't have been an angry mob on his heels. And what does he have to show for it? He doesn't know this yet, but he made an important convert there. A young man you might have heard of by the name of Timothy. In fact, if we turn one page in our Bible and look at chapter 16, we we read these words, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there, he's already there, named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, and they all knew that his father was a Greek. Suddenly, we've got another missionary in the fold, someone who has two books of the Bible named after him. This factors in so intensely. Later on in the New Testament to the point where when Paul wants someone to go and appoint elders, who does he send? Timothy. When Paul knows he's at the end of his life and he says, it's time to write my last letter ever, it starts out, dear Timothy. God was doing something in Lystra Paul couldn't even see. And so it makes perfect sense that he didn't get discouraged and abandon the work. He knew that sometimes he could see the fruit now, and sometimes he wouldn't see the fruit for years to come, and sometimes he wouldn't see the fruit until God took his head and said, hey, look at that, in eternity. But he knew that God was working, the God of creation and the God of providence. Let me close with a story that I think just encapsulates all this so well. 200 years ago in Burma, there was a group of people called the Karen, They were considered the most savage, and by the educated and and kind of advanced people, they were thought to be ignorant and kind of beyond reaching. And there was a saying, you can no more teach a Karen than you can a wild buffalo. The civilized inhabitants didn't even permit them to live in the same areas as everyone else. And there was one Karen man named Tabu who decided to live up to that proverb. He said, I'll be, a, I'll be a wild buffalo like you have never seen. And he spent his early life robbing and killing. He killed more than 30 men. Finally, he was apprehended by the Burmese government, and he was sold into slavery. Until one day, his freedom was purchased by a pioneer missionary named Adoniram Judson, who began to preach the gospel to him, and immediately realized this wasn't going to work. This guy was not 
going to listen. It was frustrating. It was like everything bounced right off him. In fact, he wrote to some relatives, here at the end of six months, this man's mind seems just as darkened as the first day. But he kept proclaiming the gospel. And he kept on proclaiming the gospel and showing love to this man whom he had freed from slavery. And one day it clicked for him. About three months later, he saw himself as a sinner. And Todd Bue recognized Jesus Christ was a Savior. And he put his faith in him. And we have there the beginning of an incredible missionary story, a spin-off from Judson's story that may be even more amazing. This man walked off into the jungle and he reached a people group that people thought were unreachable, but he was one of them. He could speak their language. He could get inside their world. He knew where to meet them. And to this day, in this very town, right down the road, there's a Karen Baptist Church. And what has happened is the Karen people have very much been seen, instead of being now barbaric or savage, they're thought of as being people who are committed, who will stick to what they say they will stick to. Ten or fifteen years later, several large groups accepted Christ as large groups. He could barely baptize the people fast enough. He had to start bringing on sub-missionaries and sending them out. Modern Korean Christians have a determination that is remarkable. Imagine what would have happened if Adoniram Jensen had said, you know what, you're free, Just I'm, I'm done with you. I can tell you don't want to listen. I can tell this isn't working. I give up. Faithful, day by day. That's the story of Paul's first missionary journey. Faithful day by day. And when he was chased out of one city, he changed location, but not vocation. Verse 7, they kept on preaching the gospel. May that be our story as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know we live in a world that by and large does not want to hear the gospel. And Lord, we know that we get easily discouraged and give up. We pray that you would keep us from doing so, that through your Spirit you would quicken our hearts, that we would want nothing more than to continue proclaiming the good news of freedom in Jesus Christ, of forgiveness of sins and newness of life, that, Lord, there would be no way that even if we were stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead, still, if we stood up, we would stand up to preach the gospel. We pray that we would have even a fraction of that desire and that tenaciousness. And Lord, we pray that we would be far more passionate about bringing the gospel than the world is about stopping the gospel. Lord, we pray for revival. We pray that the gospel would get a foothold in this city like it has not had ever before. We pray we would see people coming in droves to the cross finding faith in Jesus Christ and turning from their sins. Lord, if and when that happens, no. When that happens, we give you all the glory. We pray, Lord, that we would be those people who proclaim your name for your glory. Amen.